0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the
1: highway, in a brand new
0: day, gotta let it go, so fight. The a- Fast to to down, down. down. down.
2: I'm me- in Welcome back to Open the VoiceGate, Rewind and Rewatch, covering Enter the Dragon 2011, the second anniversary celebration, which was on June 5th, 2011 from BB King's Blues Club Bar and Grill in New York City, New York. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling podcast feed or on our own dedicated RSS feed on all podcast platforms and applications. If you'd like to donate to the show, there's no obligation. You just click the link. On the show notes, and I'll take you to Red Circle where you could do a one time or reoccurring donation. You can follow us on Twitter at Open VoiceGate. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Mike Spears. Joined as always by my co host, Case Lowen. And not to pull back the curtain from last week's episode, but got everything going from like how we were doing our weekly update this time. And I think that the computer gremlins are not going to be attacking us for this week's show.
1: We did run into a a mountain of technological issues last week, which I think Mike and I typically have very good luck in that we sit down to record this podcast and the podcast records. And that is pretty much the only, you know, that's the process we know is the the process that works last week. Maybe not so much. Maybe we were up late into the night talking about Drangate USA, but that's okay because it's, it's me and Mike Spears and it's the second year anniversary celebration of Dragon Get USA. We have watched two full years of this promotion. We have seen it shift and morph and transform into something different from how it started. Whether or not that difference is good, Jury is, you know, still out, but I think we're about to make our decision as to like, oh, man, this is Dragon Gate USA now. Okay, it's been a tough triple shot so far. I think the first two shows while not offensively bad, we're definitely that like, oh my God, like things have changed. John Moxley isn't here. There's not really that many Japanese guys on these shows. I will say up top, and we got a lot to get into before we talk about the second anniversary show, but up top, this was a fine show. I, I enjoyed most of this show. And Mike, I don't know how you feel about it. So up top, kind of big picture on the second year anniversary.
2: You know, they ended the weekend a lot stronger than they began it there were we went through like two weeks of shows that at a certain point it was the big moment of what are we doing here but this <laughs> but this show entered the dragon 2011 the second anniversary show i felt like that it started off hot and it ended pretty well there was some stuff in between that that you know we will look we'll into but i won't say that they've pulled themselves out of the tailspin but i'll say that they've at least like leveled out after this show like this is the one thing that like They could have been full on tailspin after the show and have three terrible shows back to back to back, but they at least like were able to stabilize it. And it's something that when we get into the show itself, comparing the second anniversary to the first anniversary show, pretty much gives you an idea of how drastically the company has changed for better and for a lot of ways just worse.
1: Yeah, it's a tough. Those two cards, looking at them at the same time, that's a tough tough thing to digest. Of like, oh, this is not seven years apart. This is only one year apart. Ew, I don't think the last 12 months were too kind to this company, at least from a business perspective. Now, there's almost, I, I really, there's zero newswire notes to get into on this show, but we are in the summer months of 2011 at this point, and we do need to shape what is going on Outside of the Dragon Gate USA universe, last week we talked all about Dragon Gate in Japan. We did a really deep dive on the beginnings of Junction 3 and the continued dominance of Blood Warriors. This week, we are going around the U.S. Independence as, this time in 2011, literally game-changing stuff uh, that would occur. And it starts with a Japanese promotion running in America May 13th, 14th, and 15th. We had the New Japan Invasion Tour 2011 Attack on the East Coast. Mike, let me read you. I'll read you all three of these cards. Let's start with the first show, May 13th, Rahway Rex Center, Rahway, New Jersey. Opening match Homicide and Low Key, defeating Jushin Thunder Liger and Tiger Mask, Satoshi Kojima defeating Kenny Omega. Apollo 55, Giant Bernard and Carl Anderson defeating uh, Gato, Jado, Shinsuke Nakamura, and Davey Richards, who we'll be hearing a lot about this afternoon or on this on this podcast this afternoon. It's eight thirty. I don't know why I said this afternoon. <laughs> uh, there is an IWGP Intercontinental Title tournament going on at this show to crown the white belt, the the first IWGP Intercontinental Champion. Yujiro Takahashi defeating Hideo Saito, who became Captain New Japan later, Tetsuya Naito defeating Northeast Indie Guy Josh Daniels, Toru Yano defeating Dan Moth. MVP defeating Kazuchika Okada, and the main event of the first New Japan in America show, Charlie Haas and Rhino defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi and Togi Makabe.
2: You know, this, this first show is in a raw way, like, you you have to start the show in Rawway with some combination of low key and homicide, <laughs> like, w- 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 like saying like what are we doing here? What are you doing running in New Jersey uh, with Jersey All Pro if you're not going to have that? But it's really like as we go through like this weekend of stuff, like this is this is kind of the thing that at least with like the New Japan like expansion and this is kind of the start. This is the start of it, really. Like this is before Bushi Road bought the company. This is still under Yuke's ownership, but this is like the first their first foray and it's kind of interesting looking at this like Kenny Omega was not a New Japan guy even though he faced Satoshi Kojima on this so he was a big Jersey All-Pro guy even before even before he went to FCW or Deep South so it's an interesting first show and it just gets even more wild as we get into like New York and Philadelphia
1: yeah so what follows is a show from Basketball City on May 14th 2011 which opens with Kenny Omega versus Josh Daniels. There is a six-man tag with Dan Moff, Jushin Thunder, Liger, and Tiger Mask defeating Gato, Jado, and Shinsuke Nakamura. Uh, Giant Bernard and Carl Anderson, they defeat Hideo Sato and Satoshi Kojima. Another six-man tag, this one, Davey Richards, Homicide, and Rhino defeating Kazuchiko Okada, Ryusuke Taguchi, and Togi Makabe. An IWGP junior heavyweight title match between Prince Devitt and Loki. I would love to see that, but it is not on New Japan World. The semifinals of the IWGP Intercontinental Title Tournament Torayano defeating Yujiro Takahashi and MVP defeating Tetsuya Naito. In your main event, this match is on New Japan World. IWGP heavyweight title match. Hiroshi Tanahashi defending against Charlie Haas.
2: Man, like, I. I know there might have been like an IWGP title match at Madison Square Garden where they had the WWE affiliation, but like just like that little thing of Oh Hiroshi Tanahashi's first ever title match in the United States was against was against Charlie Haas. That's just one of those things you like look at and you're like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, it's I, an I guess a trivia this.
1: question because Charlie Haas, like I will talk about it later when we talk about Ring of Honor, but this is World's Greatest Tag Team coming to the independence you know is Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas are they going to go to Japan like they were a thing on top of the decade long rumor of will Shelton Benjamin and or Carlito return at the Royal Rumble we are also now in that period of history where that was a rumor every single year but Tanahashi comes to America basketball city and he defends the belt against Charlie Haas that is insane to think about
2: yeah yeah it's wild I mean basketball city was like an ROH stand too. I mean, that's where they had the uh, Gen X versus NBC uh, cage warfare match. Like it's just like, a, this is very much like, Oh, if you're going to be running like your first weekend of shows in the United States, you're doing the Northeast. It makes sense every place that they've run. And I mean, the idea that basketball City, which I don't even think exists anymore, hosted the first ever Tanahashi world title, or <laughs> IWGP heavyweight title match in the United States is wild. Or The first time it was ever defended in the United States in the modern era.
1: And then from there, the triple shot closes at the Asylum Arena in Philly on May 15th, 2011. Tetsuya Naito defeating Hideo Saito, uh, Gato John, Oshinsuke Nakamura, and Yujiro defeating Charlie Haas, Josh Daniels, Kazuchika Okada, and Tiger Mask. Jersey All-Pro light heavyweight title match. Kitty Omega defeats Jushin Thunder Liger to gain the title. Liger came in as the champion. Uh, Bad intentions of Bernard and Anderson. They defeat Dan Boff and Satoshi Kojima. That match Sounds decent. The next match... Yeah, I'd be sounds... interested in that one. <laughs> the, the, the next match is phenomenal. Apollo 55 defending the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Titles against Homicide and Loki. And then after that, in this match is on New Japan World, Hiroshi Tadahashi versus Davey Richards in 2011. Sign me up. And then the, the card concludes with the finals of the IWGP Intercontinental Title Tournament. This is also on World MVP defeating Toriyano in a nine-minute, I'm sure, abomination of a match, and then the main event of the triple shot, the finale of New Japan and America Street Fight between Togi Makabe and Rhino.
2: It wasn't King of Destroyer. It, it just a says street... street
1: Fight on here.
2: Man, I mean, three years later, that'd be a that'd be a, a, a Tokyo Dome King of Destroyer match <laughs> if if I ever heard of one. So yeah, it's. Interesting, like, bringing this up here because we already have now DGUSA did not run Philadelphia for the first time for their uh, anniversary show. And less than four weeks beforehand, you have what it, what was considered—I mean, 2011, it was such a mess in Japan. But you, you'd have New Japan now making their first tour, and they're hitting up New Jersey. They're hitting up uh, uh, New York City, and they hit up Philadelphia, and they hit up the arena. So it, it's it, this is like a real like intersection and divergence point of at least DGUSA and New Japan, but also in a lot of ways kind of like New Japan and, and Dragon Gate because it's, I think it was 2012 that Road bought the company. So I mean, last days of ukes in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, that, those shows, and again, there's only three matches for the entire Weekend Up on New Japan World, and unfortunately, none of them involve Loki, although we do get the Davey Richards versus Tanahashi match, but those shows, I mean, I get it, they're nine years old at this point, they probably should feel a little dated, but between, you know, obviously the amount of focus on Davey Richards and Loki and Homicide, and then Charlie Haas, and then Okada is just a guy on those shows, it's... It's such a mind-blowing thing to look at and and you're exactly right. You know, they run the arena. Supposedly they drew 1500 of that show and impossible.
2: <laughs> just saying impossible. I mean, they said 1800 <laughs> in Rawway, which yeah, and 2500 in Basketball City. It wasn't just Dragon Gate USA working numbers back at this point people.
1: It's one of those things where, you know, suddenly and it's not like, you know, this tour had any legs. I believe at least internally in New Japan This tour was looked at as a failure. Now, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding of it. It is one of those things where all of a sudden, there's a little bit of competition. Now, Gabe cannot just rely on, well, we have the Japanese guys, because that's proven not to draw. And now, even if the attendance numbers are drastically inflated, there's other people doing that in his home territory. So, it's just something to monitor, I think, as we go along, especially as we hit 2012 and until we conclude this series, there's going to be more New Japan updates because I think they matter into the wrestling context. Now we obviously talked about Homicide on those shows. Homicide was somebody who worked Dragon USA and then left to work some combination of Ring of Honor, and I, you know, came back to TNA at some point. It's not the only time Dragon Gate USA has lost someone to TNA. Obviously, the Young Bucks left at the first WrestleMania weekend show, so they've been gone. About 16 months now, and if you're wondering how they are doing at this time, on an episode of Impact that was taped May 16th, 2011, Generation Me lost a six-minute tag team match to Matt Hardy and Eric Bischoff. Mike Spears, any recollection of the Eric Bischoff-Matt Hardy tag team?
2: I didn't know it actually happened.
1: <laughs> Nor did I. I was expecting bad news when I looked at the Generation B cage match, and somehow came across it came across worse than I even expected it to.
2: Yeah, that's just insane. That is <laughs> like,
1: uh, I, you know, look, I, most people that are are drawing in air quotes drawing in wrestling right now at some point trickled through TNA, and it's sure not, you know they they didn't work out there not because they're not talented. And it's just a continuous clown show for 20 years at this point.
2: And if you listen to the box and what they've said after TNA, basically had them on the brink of quitting wrestling. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people say like, it's a finishing school. Maybe you could say that over the last 18 months, but when you look back at least through like the deep and rich history of TNA, not necessarily the case. So. it's know, It's God. just a
1: pity, but luckily back on the independent scene, Uh, what is the month here? April, April nineteenth, two thousand eleven. Evolve seven Aries versus Moxley at BB King's. Bar and Grill, the same venue we're at here, but this is in April, the final independent wrestling show for John Moxley on a show that featured Shima Zion versus Jimmy Jacobs, Silas Young versus Tony Neese, Johnny Gargano versus John Davis, a Chikara Seki Gun Tag of Frightmare and Jigsaw. They defeat Facade, who we'll have to talk about later on in the show, and Jason Gorey. Zach Saber Jr. makes his evolved debut as he wrestles Sammy Callahan on that show. A.R. Fox defeated Rich Swan. Chuck Taylor defeated Akira Tozawa in his only Evolve appearance. And then Johnny Gargano defeated Chuck Taylor. They both pulled double duty on that show. And then the main event, Austin Aries defeated John Moxley as Moxley left the independent scene.
2: And I believe this was Evolve's iPay-Per-View debut. So, I believe that is like, correct. So, like, you look at this and, boy, like, I know that there's a lot of matches under 10 minutes here, but that's a... That's a stiff card to put up up there, and especially with some of these matches that we have on this. But yeah, no, this is John Moxley's debut. Just to uh, bring out a quote from the Observer that comes a couple weeks later from this, and I had this pulled up a second ago, but then I scrolled up because we were talking about something else. It is announced that uh, John Moxley is reporting to FCW. And case, okay, so let me go through some people who are in his class here because. Please. This is going to be a uh, this is going to be a trip for this. So, this was still an FCW day. So that this is coming from the the observer that was oh is the same observer that we're going to talk about in a little bit because there's a lot of quotes from it. it. Comes from the May May 30th observer. So this is the last independent show, but it does not report for another month. But it's worth ducking in here and talking about this. So a couple of newcomers to FCW at this time. Jonathan Good, aka John Moxley, who won't be keeping that name given that. That's his real name, Uh, Ethan Levin, a six foot six, two hundred seventy pound Israeli who's built as a self made self made millionaire diamond wholesaler. Alexander Rusev, a six foot flat, three hundred and five pounder who's put together like a tank, looks like one of the guys who's in the World's Strongest Man stuff you see on ESPN too. Ted DiBiase's son, Brett DiBiase, who is no longer wrestling but is now a referee. He he's in the news today, by the way. I don't know if you how much you've kept up on the DiBiase brothers about about FBI lately, case. But what, was it him or
1: was it Ted Junior or was it both? Both. Oh, it was fantastic.
2: Brett. It was Brett. But now they're looking at Ted.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. And, I did not know that. And, and,
2: and then here's another thing. And I'm I'm quoting this verbatim from Dave Meltzer from the uh, May 30th, 2011 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. They also have two women. One is named Audrey Marie, and she looks a whole lot like Carrie Vera. It's not her, but there's a resemblance. The other is named Eden Styles, who looks like a fitness competitor with the abs and muscularity and fake big boobs. Dave, even nine years ago, not really having a lie attacked about someone who would now be known as Brandy Rhodes.
1: Uh, th- that's funny just because like the name Audrey Marie really sticks out to me as someone that I remember pre WWE Network NXT when I was watching the shows religiously through so Hulu. The sun. The Sunshine Network at FCW. Yes, that sort of era of late FCW, early NXT, which I watched so much of. Audrey Marie was a name that for some reason had value to a lot of people. Like, look, like, Future of the Divas, Audrey Marie right here. And then for, for so long, I remember the rumor being that she was going to be in the Wyatt family as the proverbial sister Abigail, which right. my my understanding is they are still like now, I guess Alexa bliss is doing a thing with the fiend. Don't know, don't really pay attention, but it's nice to know that nine years later, they are still trying to make sister Abigail a thing. But I remember that always being the deal with Audrey Marie. So it's interesting to see her in this class where, uh, Rusev and Moxley obviously were the standouts and rightfully so.
2: Yeah. Like that's like a stereotypical FCW ass signing class right there. You, <laughs> you have, you, you have, uh, a son of a wrestler you have two people who actually ended up becoming like big main roster mainsays Brandy Rhodes who's now the, uh, the the chief branding officer of another company and then having someone that you're going to give an Israeli self-made millionaire diamond wholesaler gimmick and you know that that's that, that's very much FCW so I thought that was a nice way for us to tie up you know the entire thing of Moxley but we still have a more evolved show to, to talk about. And one of the more famous Evolve shows, case, I think you, you have everything pulled up as we first have our first ever Evolve style battle. Oh, who could forget the style battle? May 20th,
1: 2011. Put it in your calendar as a day in history from Union City, New Jersey at the famed Ace Arena. We have style battle at Evolve 8. Mike, the styles included in this tournament... Each representing a different style of professional wrestling. We have AR Fox, who is representing high flying. We have Austin Aries, who is representing hybrid style. We have Bobby Fish, the Pure Risu Jr. heavyweight style. Brody Lee is a super heavyweight. John Davis is representing power style. Sammy Callahan is hard hitting. Tony Nice, despite the fact that he is known for having a 450 splash, his style is standing combat. And Rich Swan is representing Rich Swan style.
2: Just like, all right. (laughs) Like, this is Gabe at his most, Gabe. Like, first off, like, Austin Aries being hybrid style, hard hitting style, and power style aren't they the same thing? uh standing combat style with knees like what the fuck are we even doing here but like it does seem like three of them he was dead on about air fox is a high flyer brody lee is a super heavyweight and rich swan is swan style <laughs> i mean there's no better way to phrase it oh.
1: God, I I love this so much. Every single style battle has delivered in their own special way. (laughs) And this just, this kicks so much ass. Because like you said, three of them, fine. Those make sense. Uh, John Davis being power. Sammy Callahan, I guess, being hard hitting. I mean, I think he was known more for being like a hardcore guy. Yeah. Which could have made that tournament more interesting, and then again, Tony Deuce, known for having a 450 splash standing combat, so that tournament was that owns. something that else. Owns. I mean, it's <laughs> it's something else. It's on a show where you have these first round tournament matches, uh, most notably Bobby Fish versus Austin Aries, Sammy Callahan versus Brody Lee, and Ar Fox versus Rich Swan. You also have uh, the SATs on this show, defeating Alex Colon and Ricky Reyes, and then an eight-way fray match, so you see some brand synergy there between Drangate USA and Evolve, with Pinky Sanchez coming out on top, and a match that would feature uh, two, who we'll talk about later on in this show, Blaine Rage, Brian XL, Cheech Hernandez, Derek Rice, Corey Chavis, and Scott Reed, and then the finals of the first-ever style, uh, style battle tournament, a. R. Fox representing the high flying style defeating Sammy Callahan of the hard hitting style. As he should,
2: as he should. I, I just <laughs> right, side of, right side of history there. I had to look up to see that Blaine Rage was not a misspelling. Blaine Rage is still wrestling today. So in Florida, wrestling in Florida, you know, it's Florida wrestling. But yeah, Brian XL oh, and boy. Cheech Hernandez on the same match, like that's wild in its own right. And then. I thought Corey Chavis has kind of disappeared from the Gabe-verse after Dark Dark City Fight Club had, like, their one match together, and that was it. But he made a appearance here. Derek Ryze, I want to say Derek Ryze was a GCW guy. I'm not positive. Oh, Derek Ryze makes an appearance later on in Evolve shows. And actually, Evolve shows of the time period at DGUSA. Oh, he's a DGUSA Future, uh, veteran.
1: Yeah, he, I, I, I I've seen him on DGUSA shows. The, the name Derek Rise did not trip me up, Mike. I am well-versed in the Derek Rise verse Yeah.
2: No, no, oh, no, we're going to be talking about him very soon. Jeez, I apologize. <laughs> we'll be talking about Derek Rise next, uh, next Triple Shot weekend. That's on me. I failed us on that. But, however, Blaine Rage, <laughs> what a name, Blaine Rage, uh, was a former, and uh, this title just sounds insane. I found out what the company name is first. Our, it's the former Go Wrestle Powerweight Champion. <laughs> How is a powerweight out of the style battle tournament? Are you kidding I me? I mean, <laughs> he also fought for the Go Wrestle. Is he a, He is also a former Go Wrestler Speedweight Champion. Why does Go Wrestling have a better idea of what
1: style battle is than Gabe Sapolsky does? Style battle now looks like a bigger failure than it should be, all because of the Go Wrestling lineage. Yeah, yeah, and they
2: also have an open weight champion. So you have a power weight and a speed weight and then open weight. Like like they have it figured out here in Daytona Beach. God that I I'm now I'm clicking on their Twitter page because now I'm I'm incredibly amused. Uh just upper Oh god, like this is some real like uh the, the, this is some shit i'm just looking at this right now okay so uh everyone go visit uh at double underscore go wrestle this might be like the next like uh nwa mountain state just looking at it it is insane this is uh well what what's the
1: at, uh, at underscore go wrestle at
2: underscore go wrestle they only have 230 followers
1: and the only person that i follow that also follows them is iwa mid-south which is a reflection That's on, on you. the company as much as it is myself yes, 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 yes. yes. very That's... much on you
2: but blaine rage <laughs> is gonna be... i don't think blaine rage ever does another dg or another Gabe verse thing i'm gonna make sure of this because i don't want to be speaking out of turn here uh n- the green screen on go is insane <laughs> yes yes oh no uh Lane Rage is defeated by the Man Scout, uh, Jake Manning, at Evolve 16 Davis versus Fish in oh, Jacksonville, thank Florida. Thank
1: God we are. Thank God we are not doing an Evolve Rewatch. Thank God. And, and, and
2: would it surprise you that that is a part of the second annual style battle Weekend Rob, uh, round robin challenge?
1: <laughs> what? I, I mean, look, he seems like a nice guy, but what style is Jake Manning doing other than shitty professional wrestler? Is that his style? Nice guy. Love the High Spots Network an
2: abysmal wrestler i mean i've seen my fair share of man scout matches being where i live so i'm not you're not wrong i'll say that much you are not wrong so that's what was going on in evolve evolve was wild at the time evolve just <laughs> deciding to have style battles having swan style like they just were gabe was feeling himself that week <laughs> it, it's not as bad as the stable shootout where Match three, actually, this is two matches, but...
1: <laughs> it's simple. There's three matches. Actually, there's two. It's actually four. Oh, my God. Game of 2011 is, as the kids say, on one. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But that's not all that was happening in the landscape, though, kids. We are... No. There's a lot going on. No, oh, go, please no. go ahead.
1: Yeah, well there's th- there's 3 PWG shows to talk about because they all involve Akira Tozawa and we start off with April 9th 2011 card subject to change 3, a show that Mike I if you could put yourself in the April 2011 stratosphere for a second, there was one man that was dominating pop culture headlines and that man was Charlie Sheen. And the story goes that Excalibur was pushed and pushed and pushed to title this show winning. And Excalibur refused, again, right side of history, and came out with card subject to Change 3, a show from the American Legion Post that featured Johnny Yuma versus Peter Avalon, Candace LeRae versus my favorite women's wrestler of all time, Portia Perez, Roderick Strong versus Willie Mack, and what is Willie Mack's coming out party, uh, Akira Tozawa who was on a bit of a path of dominance in PWG. Well, no amount of momentum is strong enough to outlast the wrath that is low-key. Low-key defeats Akira Tozawa. Uh, Johnny Goodtime defeats New Japan USA's Ryan Taylor. A PWG World title match between Claudio Castagnoli and Redacted. And then the main event, a PWG World Tag Team title match, the Young Bucks defeating El Generico, and it was supposed to be Paul London. Paul London did not make it. Who shows up in his place? None other than Ricochet, the main event of Card Subject to Change 3, the Young Bucks, who a month later would lose to Matt Hardy and Eric Bischoff on TV in PWG. They defeat El Generico and
2: Ricochet for the PWG Tag Team titles. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the times that uh, Paul London was starting to kind of dip out of wrestling (laughs) So <laughs> very much. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. The Peligro Abejas, which means danger Beast, was the tag team name. And no, I do remember this low-key match. I was like, oh hell yeah! Like it's gonna be a characters out versus Loki. That's gonna be dope. It's gonna a Tozawa and Loki. That's your role. Then it's like Loki on his bullshit in this match. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, of the golden era of PWG,
1: which honestly you could argue starts in September of 2009 at the Danielson farewell show that also has the Dragon Gate guys on it. This is one of the few shows that you can look at and go, you know what? That one wasn't great. This, it, this is not a great PWG show. But what follows at the end of May, May 27th, May 28th, All-Star Weekend 8, night one is Willie Mack defeating Kevin Steen in the opener, uh, the Dynasty of Scorpio Sky and Redacted defeating the and Taylor Boys of Brian Cage Taylor and Ryan Taylor, Chuck Taylor defeated Kenny King, This is the match that Chuck Taylor injured himself. This is why Chuck Taylor was not on this Triple Shot show that we've been discussing. Uh, The World Tag Team titles are on the line. The Young Bucks defeating the Rockness Monsters. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeating the Cutler Brothers. Eddie Edwards defeating Alex Shelley. The Nightmare Violence Collection of Akira Tozawa and Kevin Steen defeating El Generico and Ricochet. And the main event, the world title match, where the top rope breaks, and a 40-minute classic, Claudio Castagnoli defeating Chris Hero, Mike, the thing on this show, Tozawa versus Generico and Ricochet,
2: one of the all-time great American tag
1: team matches. Yeah,
2: this is, again, if Dave was watching PWG this time, this probably was a five-star match. Like... Oh my God!
1: It's I mean it's almost a five star match for me. It's four and three quarters with it's just not it's just not
2: five. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not five. But it is so close to being perfect. It, it, it's like what the Supreme Court says about obscenity. When you see a five star match, you'll know it. <laughs> but no, this is actually like a great like PWG card. I mean, after you get, uh, you, what you should do is watch Willie Mack versus Kevin Seen. Uh, skip over the next two <laughs> matches and pick up hit hit the old skip button <laughs> just tap that twice and then you have the uh, Rocketess Monsters were like as like a house team like they were different and, it, and and like they weren't at the level of everyone else but this was a fun match like the Bucks worked around that uh, and then Jin Next versus Cutler Brothers is a good time. Edwards and Shelly you know like that's a match that you know is it, it's not as great as you think it could be but it's a very fun match and then Claudio and Chris Hero for 41 minutes working around that kind of match, that's an insane match. Like this weekend of shows, and this is just night one of this, was already great stuff. Yeah,
1: I love that main event just because it's it's not even the best singles match those two would have, but it's one of those where given the circumstances they're dealt and the fact that they still go 40 minutes, it's a testament to just how good both of those guys are. And to follow the tag match, which, you know, no fault of Hero and Claudio. The tag match blew them out of the water, but the main event was still really good.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, this was an era that, like, really started. That, I mean, you had at least three, four star matches on the show. One, one match on that show that could have been a five star match and could have been, like, a top five match in the Wrestling Observer match of the year poll.
1: Night 2, All-Star Weekend 8, Night 2, Kenny King defeats Brian Cage-Taylor, Akira Tozawa and Kevin Steen, they defeat the Rocknest Monsters, Ricochet defeats Willie Mack in a match that I remember really enjoying, Uh, the Cutler Brothers fall to the Dynasty, Eddie Edwards defeats El Generico, the Young Bucks defeat Eddie, or I'm not, not Eddie Edwards, Austin Aries and Roderick Strong, Young Bucks versus Generation Next in a dream match of sorts. This would be Akira Tozawa's farewell from being in the promotion full time. So, not only does he wrestle the Rock Nest Monsters in the semi main event, he wrestles Chris Hero and he defeats Chris Hero to send him back to Japan, a triumphant man in the main event. Another match with a lot of lore around it, given that Kevin Steen has been pretty vocal about the fact that Loki did not want to do the job to Claudio Castagnoli, but he was talked into it. Main event, Claudio defeats Loki in 20 minutes in just a bananas match, because you can tell Loki is not happy to be there,
2: but it's still Loki and Claudio, so it's still really good. Yeah, so the big story about the show was that Chris Hero was not booked on this, sh- uh, on this show. And it's kind of like, oh, why is Chris Hero not booked on the show? When, like, the full lineup was out there. And then right after, like, Nightmare Violence Collection versus Rockness Monsters, Chris Hero com- comes out. And, of course, uh, Chris Hero versus Akira Tozawa from the previous years about Battle of Los Angeles was the match that put Tozawa on the map. It still probably is the best match to ever happen at the uh, American Legion Hall. And they said, our oh, and Hero came out there and says, like, so, you had a good match, but I think you have one more in you. And the, he got the pin on Hero during DDT4, and they decided to have this match. And, you know, it is an incredibly emotional match. I'm not very, like, um, I'm not very someone that, like, really taps into emotion of wrestling in a lot of ways. Like, there's some moments it do, but this match just drips of it. And then, you know, Akira Tozawa basically wrestled an hour over the, the the two nights and finally puts away, like, really his true rival on this excursion and goes home. And, you know, it, it, there's a reason why whenever Tozawa wrestled in the States before WWE, he said he was from uh, Huntington Beach or Reseda because this was, like, his home. And then, and then of course, like, the Young Bucks being shitheads at this time try to attack them during this, and then they fought them off.
1: I completely forgot about the Huntington Beach bad boy, Akira Tozawa. That is a good... A good memory of Joe Zawa <laughs> saying he's from Huntington Beach. I don't know why that always made me laugh, but it, it did. owns. Um, it's it's great. Well, Chris Hero has one hell of a 2011, and you know he has that great weekend at PWG, and then we transition to Ring of Honor, who from WrestleMania weekend through, we'll end up talking about the end of June. The shows that they had were not terrific. There's one show in particular that I'll mention from May 7th, 2011, ROH Revolution Canada, which had Claudio versus Kyle O'Reilly in the opener. A Davey Richards versus Kenny King match, which I guarantee was touted as the future of Ring of Honor. uh, Because that is what happened every time those two guys were in the ring with one another. But the show was notable for two matches. One, the Colt Cabana versus Delirious Larry Sweeney tribute match. We talked about Larry Sweeney two episodes ago. Cabana and Delirious had a great comedy match there. But then the main event of this show, talk about emotions in wrestling. Chris Hero challenged for the Ring of Honor World title against Eddie Edwards in an unheralded classic because this is kind of a dead period for Ring of Honor. It's post-Final Battle 2010. We'll talk about the structural changes that occurred in the company in just a second. This Edwards versus Hero match unfortunately gets lost due to a number of factors, but it is one of the all-time great Ring of Honor world title matches.
2: Yeah, yeah, and from a period that a lot of things are changing, and, you know, Hero, like, I know he talks about his 2015, but his 2011, I mean, if we're... Oof, man. I, I mean, like, that would be, like, a fun, like... Like, shoot tape or, like, something to have. Sit down to Chris here and go, like, all right, you've talked about 2015 of Rob Naylor. That's a great thing on High Spots network worth watching if you haven't seen it before. Let's talk about your 2010 to 2011 because it's such an insane time. And
1: with that, Mike, we go to the June 2nd, 2011, Figure Four Weekly, where Brian Alvarez writes... The major announcement that would change ROH forever was the sale of the company to Sinclair Broadcasting, a TV company that owns stations covering 22% of the United States, mostly in secondary markets. The deal will include a new television show that starts this fall, with the first four-episode taping taking place in August in Chicago Ridge. The hope is that the TV show, which will air on Saturday nights, will do Ratings decent enough that they can syndicate the show to non-Sinclair markets. Most of the people affiliated with the company will remain in their current roles, including Jim Cornette and Delirious on Creative. They will be using all the wrestlers currently under contract, introducing them uh, to the new audience over the next several months, as if they are all new stars. The television will do slow builds to- build towards iPay per two over WrestleMania weekend, as has become the tradition, and then three others throughout the year. They're doing the opposite of what Dragon Gate USA is doing in the sense that DGUSA is making all of their shows and Evolve shows I pay per view events, whereas ROH feels they are that only doing five, basically four, because two are back-to-back on a single weekend, makes each event more special. Of course, the difference is that ROH has TV to build up their pay-per-views, and Dragon Gate USA does not. How big of a success or failure this will be is yet to be determined. So 9 years ago, Mike, ROH became Sinclair Property and to this day they are still
2: Sinclair Property. Yeah, and there's really like two big things to talk about with this. First, uh, the reason why the sale happened and I know now Kerry Silken has a podcast where he's talked about like some some things about ROH that really weren't talked about before and for Silken after he bought the promotion from Fine Scene and Gentry, it was a money loser. Like, it was a promotion that, I mean, like, there, that was one of the reasons why Gabe got ousted in 08. It was a company that, like, he was losing a lot of money and that he was like, I don't, I'm not confident in your vision anymore. So he pivoted again. Then you had the HDNet thing, which, as, like, later on they talk about, was, like, net like, extremely limited, and there was no evidence that net increased business that much. So it was getting, like, to the end of the string. I do remember something. I've, uh, I might be, like, paraphrasing this. Case, do you know what was the one weekend that uh, Kerry Sulkin said Ring of Honor was in the black after the weekend and was not relying on DVD sales post post show? Oh, I, I do not actually. It was WrestleMania weekend, two thousand six. Mm. Oh, which was headlined by what match? Oh, uh, just a uh, <laughs> six guys. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're in two different teams. One is called like Do Fix Do Fixer. I believe yeah and it had this guy uh dragging kid and then the other team had like oh geez it was a gross name it was like generation of blood blood generation that's it yeah no no that's the only weekend he said that they made money at the venue and didn't make things back on dvd and then even like the dvd sales like they would well, like the talk was like their dvd sales were fine but i mean it would top out like at low five figures for like uh uh kobashi versus joe so this was a company that for a long time was this and this was not silken's like primary company like he was putting money in for because he was a ticket broker and he was taking money from the ticket broker into this so that was like the huge like sea change that like i remember like reading at the time that if silken did not sell the sinclair broadcast group roh would have closed in 2011 some point it was just was like i remember him mentioning it was like losing too much money from that and then sinclair broadcast group in twenty eleven we didn't know who Sinclair Broadcast Group was. <laughs> other than, oh, they have T V networks. But now I mean the, the interesting number that was like listed here was that like Sinclair Broadcast Group had uh, TV affiliates, that was twenty two percent in the United States. I believe that's up to thirty three percent now, then they have all the regional sports networks now. So that this was a company that was about to go through a huge period of expansion in the last four years, you know, I mean had some of its biggest expansion ever. And you know I mean this is something that at least the small that they had, I remember first getting like the Sinclair uh, Ring of Honor TV. and even at like the time, like it was not necessarily anything to call home about, but it was still like really based around like these big per view events and then a couple DVD sales. So it's interesting that like this all coincided at the same time as New Japan's first international expansion of the modern era. So I think that's kind of wild. but yeah. This is is an insane thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few different things I can bounce off of there. I mean, first of all, just in the Midwest, which is where I'm located, I have seen the Sinclair expansion uh, take place dramatically over the past few years. You know, when I first started going to Ring of Honor shows in 2013, Sinclair did not have a market in Indianapolis, nor did they in Chicago. Now they have uh, a presence in both markets, and... You know, maybe now there's an increase in anti-vaxxers. Who knows? Uh, We don't have the research to say one way or another. Um, the, The first few, and we'll talk about them as we go along, but the first few Sinclair ROH TV episodes are so uncomfortably sterile because they do almost like a systematic restart where it's like, here's who these guys are. And it's one thing to introduce characters. And it's one thing to almost remold them into this new vision for a new audience. And it's just very, very uncomfortable. And that is something that, you know, I mean, there have been periods in the Sinclair era that I have loved ring of honor. I think 2014 and most of 2015 are really, really good years for the company But their TV is something they've still never totally been able to figure out, with the exception where they were on Destination America for like four months. They've never really been able to figure out how to make their TV must-watch, and it's weird because there's so much talent that passed through there and it has never felt
2: like must-watch wrestling TV. I just looked this up. As of today, they have 40% of American households with their 193 <laughs> stations. They, oh, no. They <laughs> own four different digital mic- multicast network, which are the... If you have cable and you have, like, the dash button, it's like 40-1. dash That's what those are. Those aren't much bigger thing in other parts of the world, not as much in the United States. And then they own both the Tennis Channel and Fox Sports Networks. So it's an interesting thing like that they got in at a time where sinclair was about to explode and ring of honor it took a while for sinclair to invest in ring of honor like yeah like i remember i was st- i was on the site when i was like making complaints about like how bad their production was and how they would use light trees rather than a rig and all those things <laughs> i remember like like that happening Like it was like 2017 that they finally made like the big production upgrades so It's something that gave them a more staple thing. And of course, like the thing for Sinclair, why they wanted this, they could sell the TV ads. Like it was basically like, and I think to this day, like, I don't know when ROH airs in my area, but I remember when I used to have a DVR, I would record it and it'd be like 2 a.m. So they were just using it as like production filler just to sell ads. So ROH. I I went, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, Oh, I was going to say like, so this is like ROH, like, and and they're going to dip down a little bit more so but this is ROH will be a major figure and clearly past Dragon Gate probably by 2013. Dragon Gate USA, by 2013 easily, 2012 debatedly.
1: Yeah, I went to every Ring of Honor show in Chicago Ridge from 2013 to, I guess, now that I think about it, the last Ring of Honor show I was at was Global Wars 2016, so I can't believe it's been four years. That is the show, by the way, that is the show where I handed Tomohiro Ishii a $20 bill, but... I I, I, mean, I went, because I was 14 when I started going, I went with my mom to all these Ring of Honor shows, and even she noticed by the end of it, like, wow. Like, their live event experience has improved so much from the first time we went to a show where it's the Frontier Fieldhouse, and it's dimly lit, and Jay Lethal and Paul London are sitting at, at just a folding table with no branding on it, and I walk up to them and have a conversation with them to... You know, not even you know, I think the, the Global War show is, you know, a level up, but even from the show before that where it's there's, you know, they're they're billing you know, billing this Ring of Honor live experience and there's branding everywhere and there's lights and there's music and it felt like you were really a part of something. So it was a very slow rollout. You said Ring of Honor clearly overtakes Dragon Gate USA by at least twenty twelve. Uh, for as much as I love Dragon Gate USA I don't think they ever had a show quite like Best in the World 2011, just in terms of how big and important it felt. And this is June 6, 2011, so a little bit after our triple shot. But for all intents and purposes, this is either... uh, Some people consider it the last show before Sinclair took over. Some consider it to be the first show with Sinclair there. Uh, But it is a loaded, loaded show with a dark match of Generation Me against Future Shock, an opener of Tommaso Ciampa defeating Colt Cabana, Jay Lethal defeating Mike Bennett, Homicide defeating Rhino in a street fight, Michael Elgin defeating Steve Carino, and then after the match, Kevin Steen would make his return to Ring of Honor. TV title match, El Generico wins the belt from Christopher Daniels. There is a four-way elimination match for the ROH World Tag Team titles with the world's greatest tag team, the All Night Express, the Briscoes, and the Kings of Wrestling. And the main event, a match that I rewatched yesterday and was blown away by just how good it was, Davey Richards winning the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship from Eddie
2: Edwards in 36 minutes. Oh, the famous effing Jen promo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I think my time was wrong there. I was like thinking maybe 2010 Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate were on the same level because they were arguing over Davy Richards. But yeah, yes. clearly at this point, yeah, I retract what I said. No, you're absolutely right. Because well, I sure, I insane. mean, you just.
1: You look at the optics of it, and I don't know if they sold out Hammerstein, but they're at least wrestling in front of a a large capacity crowd in Hammerstein two weeks before. With all due respect to Yamato and Pac, two wrestlers who I obviously love, they're wrestling in front of 400 people at BB King's in the same city. So, uh, you know, it pains me to say it, but Davey was in the right. You know, he came out ahead in this situation.
2: No, 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 it it definitely seemed to work out for him at the very least, and I think those are all of our big notes. Like this is something that like there was a lot of big events here. Usually these, these US Indies things go on a little bit shorter. But I mean, New Japan in America, Ring of Honor in Sinclair, uh, Tazawa's last weekend in PWG, and then we also had to talk a little bit about Style Battle. This was like a that this is really like as I feel like we're entering like the modern era of uh, uh, of modern indie wrestling in a lot of ways.
1: And and I will, I, yes, I, I completely agree. I'll make one more quick note to back up that point, which is that the night after Best in the World, June 27th, 2011, on Raw, CM Punk cuts the pipe-bomb promo on John Cena, where he says, maybe I'll go wrestle New Japan Pro Wrestling. Maybe I'll go back to Ring of Honor. He looks in the camera and says, hey, Cole Cabana, how you doing? Uh, you know, the merits of whether or not this angle between CM Punk and John Cena drew are still up for debate, and on the Voices of Wrestling flagship Patreon, Rich Kreitz just did a very good breakdown of SummerSlam 2011 and all of the failures that went into this program. But, ultimately, I say this as someone who wasn't watching wrestling in 2011, but came back to wrestling in 2012 because of CM Punk, and quickly, you know, it was like, oh my god, that's right, this guy's amazing, this is why I liked wrestling, and this pipe bomb promo... uh, represented every edgy 14, 15 year old thought I had. And it was on flagship WWE television. And I think it's safe to say for the next four or five years, this completely changes the landscape of wrestling in terms of what is possible visibility of other promotions and what you can do with your platform as a wrestler in terms of creative freedoms and where you work and how you work. The punk promo if i think it's worth mentioning here because oh absolutely for m- my generation it is a historic wrestling event
2: yeah 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 and this is all happening with around this weekend with dg usa where dg usa had two abysmal shows and then was not able to run their historic place and had their lowest uh box office uh uh anniversary show So really puts a lot of things in context, Which now
1: now we're ready to talk about. Unless you've got something, I'm ready to enter the dragon, my friend. No,
2: I am more than willing to enter the dragon. So one last note from the Observer. So there was a note here about the shows, and we will talk more about this a little later. It was Austin Aries' last weekend with the group as he decided to take time away from wrestling. He was originally going to quit prior to this weekend, which is why the he was going to leave and lost. He lost and did a swerve. What happens if he changed his mind after the stipulations were announced? Then a few weeks ago, he once again said he wanted to quit wrestling. Also worth noting, the IPay-per-view went out and bb kings this night and after the show they announced a new a new program that they were doing for i (laughs) pay-per-views which you know that is very much like this the old policy was if you order the pay-per-view on the internet you could watch it until the dvd comes out now you can order an pay-per-view and watch it forever so yeah video on demand was not a thing with early uh uh wwn live and dg usa.tv so those are two big notes there the attendance here was announced that our Dave Meltzer said about 500 and I guess I said the per review in the building didn't crash which is something because it did not happen anymore they are going to offer the Stember per review free to everyone who bought that one so
0: in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks we hype ourselves up thinking maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates it's all just a shot in the dark Off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net, club.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of the Wrestling Podcast Network.
2: As we get into this, we are back in B.B. King's uh, Blues Club Bar & Grill. It is, it is June 5th, 2011. And we open up the show with Blood Warriors coming out, and it's the first time that uh, I noticed that Shima was really getting booed on, uh, booed by the crowd, and he says he hates New York. And that leads to s- speed star hitting, and then we opened up with Ricochet versus uh, Masato Yoshino. Masato Yoshino won this match in a listed 16 minutes and 54 seconds with the Sol Naciente.
1: Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the Ricochet versus uh, Susumu Yokosuka match, which... Was a fine match. Uh, those two would go on to have better performances with one another. But it was, you know, a Ricochet singles match, and and that was important for him to be able to accomplish such a thing at that point in his career. What blew me away here was the fact that it's Ricochet versus Yoshino. You would expect a certain type of match from these guys, but what we got instead was. Despite Ricochet being the heel, Ricochet sells for a long portion of this match, and Ricochet survives off of his selling and his charisma, which if you look at a year ago, he's the guy that has the double moonsault, and that is it, and that is all that Ricochet is known for. A year into the future, six months with Dragon Gate, ricochet looked like a completely different
2: and close to becoming a well-rounded professional wrestler yeah like the thing that like took me back by this match was ricochet was like throwing some great forearms and as a guy who's not really known as a striker i was like okay ricochet you're actually like laying in here and that and it's like takes me a while to think about next match where i thought about oh ricochet is throwing some great strikes and uh other notes that i really like i like this match so much more than the uh susumi Yokosuka match i remember being a little bit down and a little bit disappointed about that match a little bit this match i felt like was exactly what you're expecting i feel like this is ricochet's best singles match in gg usa to date and then i i thought it was kind of great that uh masato yoshino goes for the from jungle and that's a move he doesn't even do anymore but the crowd was buying into that as a finish and if you're buying into the for jungle or from jungle as a finish then you're doing a really good job of getting the crowd in and, and of course Three minutes in, uh, Shima tried to throw a chair into the ring. So, I mean, just <laughs> on, on every level, I feel like this worked from a preposterous Shima level. It's, it's a good night for Shima. There's a lot of Shima stuff that I really, really like on this yeah. show. Okay, so I went four flat on this. This is a notebook match in my books. I thought this was excellent. So I went three
1: and a half, but I completely uh, validate your four-star feeling on this match. What I really liked about this now, look, I will say this about every single match on the show could have been a few minutes shorter. Yes. But what is cool about this is that it is the closest we really have to the idea of Masato Yoshino working an American TV match. Again, it's a little too long to say, like, oh, this is what Yoshino would be like if he worked for X promotion that had TV. Because even, like, the Speed Muscle versus Motor City Machine Guns match, that is, that, that is what TV wrestling should be. But it's not what TV wrestling is. This match with the story with Shima on the outside, with just the pace they worked. It feels like Yoshino's working TV, which is just nice. It's a bit of a novelty in his illustrious career to see a match like this. Yeah,
2: yeah. And like this really was working like the upstart versus the veteran. And how can ricochet like stick into this match? Like the only thing I can imagine that this match was like two minutes shorter. And then we started getting like calls saying like five minutes have elapsed, ten minutes have elapsed, three minutes remaining. <laughs> and then Masahiro Yoshino know, goes, "Screw this!" Torbellino, a Solnaciente, gets out of there. Like that's the only thing to me that would like raise the stakes in this match. But it was just like, you know, and that's as you said, a lot of matches on this show go on for go on for a little bit longer, especially the next match. But do you have any more thoughts about uh, Yoshino and Ricochet before we get on with the rest of the card? A very very good opener. Yeah, this is. This was at, getting this match first off after having to sludge through Uprising and Fearless. I was much happier. Like, I was like dreading watching the show, and then like this happened. I was like, all right, I'm back in this. Mike's back, baby. Mike's back on board. <laughs> I, as I said earlier, they, they did not completely like pull out the tailspin on this show because of stuff that would happen later, but they definitely smoothed the course. And I was already in a good mood post match. As soon as the bell rang, Blood Warriors jumped in the ring and laid him out. Pack ran in for the save. Of course, they are Mochizuki army members, and then Pack eventually gets overwhelmed as it was four on two. Then Yamato came in for the save and bails him out. And I really like this because this ended like okay, these these three guys are affiliated, but it ended with Pack and Yamato staring each other down. I thought that was a real effective way of building up the main event.
1: Great angle, no complaints for me. Uh, As we go along, and this is about the point of the promotion where it starts happening where Dragon USA becomes match angle, match angle, match angle, and it's this awful, repetitive nature of these shows, with the big issue being that the angles are never as clear and concise as this one was. This was very well done. Yeah, I
2: mean, like earlier this weekend, they had the uh, never-ending DUF versus... Uh, Susumu and Mochizuki fight this was like two minutes and it got everything across we went backstage for another uh, another quick segment as Ronan was on a serious note trying to figure out what they're going to do about this match because this match was signed even though Chuck Taylor wasn't involved in it so they need to find another partner in this six man tag team elimination match Johnny wanted Goldberg but Ricochet said or not Ricochet sorry Rich Swan said no no I have someone I have someone and he ran away I, I, I actually got a chuckle out of the Goldberg line when he said that, and it was another like short, effective segment. Yeah, no, I so far I'm very much enjoying Enter the Dragon, and then Speed, Muscle, and Spike Mohican was a top year two moment, and you know it was a top year two moment. You know, we, we you, you can't have uh, Shingo and Danielson on this thing, but yeah, this was a top year two moment. I it's I think it's one of Gabe's best booking decisions ever.
1: I think it is as effective, as I said this on the show, this is Untouchable 2010 with Danielson versus Yamato. And this match of Shima and Ricochet versus Yoshino and Doi, they make, uh, they make Ricochet in one night. I This is just a, a
2: marvelous job
1: of making a star and not only one night, but in one
2: match. It's incredible. A match that did not make a star. Was Ar Fox defeating Pinky Sanchez in 13 minutes and two seconds? Again, they went kind of long on the show with the low main pain. And is there something that like he was inducted into DUF and I missed this because like after the match they had the idea that DUF comes out and lays out Ar Fox and they make a big thing about that they the Ar Fox beat up a member of DUF so that's why Cannon and Callahan were coming out for this, but. Was this something I missed that like between the shows that Pinky Sanchez was officially became a DUF member? It's a
1: huge issue with the presentation of DUF. They neglected two things. They neglected early on to fully explain what DUF stood for. And then after that, they neglected to properly indoctrinate Pinky Sanchez into the group. It's there's too much up in the air about is he there is he not does he respect Callahan does Callahan respect him it's very confusing right in the way it's laid out and there's you know they cut promos but the promos are Callahan in canon so we never really know and it's just unfortunate because there's a lot of stuff at least up to this point before we get to the Midwest triple shot that I really like about the DUF and I think they just bring an interesting flavor into the promotion this match i want you to go first
2: mike what are your thoughts on air fox versus pinky sanchez uh this was weird we had like three minutes of pinky sanchez wrestling with his tights down both the speedo on it was this was a match that should have been like a five minute squash
1: Yes. It, it, I, the, the tight spot, I believe, happened by accident, and then they just went with it, where they were climbing on top of each other, and Fox started to pull down his tights, and, and they went with it, and it seemingly improvised something out of it, which I, it was not offensive, but also wasn't very good, uh, which I think is the Pinky Sanchez story right there. Um, it it's a match where Pinky was fine. Now he does not ever need to be wrestling in thirteen minute matches. No. What what stood out to me here is that AR Fox, who we saw him in Philly, where he you know he and Sam Callahan kill themselves in a in a freestyle match, and then AR Fox wrestles Cheech the next night. Uh, he's in the breakout challenge stuff, and then six way matches in Atlanta. He's obviously in the Style Battle Tournament. He's wrestling uh, in CZW, in the Junior Heavyweight Title Program with Adam Cole at this point. What's noticeable here is that in this match, and especially the night before, but it's more obvious here, partially just because A.R. Fox has different gear that looks so much more professional than what he had been wearing. A.R. Fox has made a leap. He has made a, a step up in his game, and he is now... You know, he went from being that guy that does those moves to now I have a better understanding of who A.R. Fox is, what he can bring to the table, and his ceiling on singles matches, which was brought to us the night before with his match with Akira Tozawa, and now he's in a position against Pinky Sanchez where he is the more talented of the two in the match, and the match doesn't fall apart. It's a three-star match. It's nothing special. But the fact that A.R. Fox can now lead somebody to a three-star match is very impressive given his experience level, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think you actually pretty much covered this match as much as we really need to. So I went two and a Uh, three-quarter. Post-match, DUF came out to cheer out out AR Fox. Apparently, like, his big nickname was number one draft pick. For what? I don't know. He was
1: the number one draft pick for Dranget USA, which goes back to the show in Philly where Lenny says... He would be the number one draft pick in Dragon USA. Now, what that means, I do not know, but that is something that he was branded as in the past for some reason. I guess to say he's like a blue chip prospect, but they never really
2: did anything with that. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Sammy Callahan talked about that, talked about his abs, and then that's why I noted, I guess, Pinky is now in DUF, and then they start. They started the feud that I think is probably one of the worst long-term feuds in the company, AR Fox versus DUF. <laughs> they lay him out. They throw a keg on him and attack him with a rope pile on. And actually, this was an effective way of starting the feud. We'll see how we feel about this about eight episodes time.
1: We'll see how we feel about it in about eight episodes time. <laughs> For now, super effective angle. I loved it. It is exactly what DUF needed, where if you're not going to put them against Blood Warriors or specific guys long-term Injunction three. This is the direction they needed to go. And again, we'll see how we feel about it. But the angle starts off really hot and Callahan and Cannon come out looking really good from it.
2: And then we had another uh year two highlight. This was the kamikaze USA versus World One tag, which was the first time I think like in a long time that all the big six were in a tag team match together in Milwaukee, which was again another tremendous match. Gabe's picking good matches for this, and that leads us to the nine way free match case.
1: Look, there's a lot <laughs> of guys in this match. It starts off, and I- I'll let you take the brunt of this, but I I just need to mention the match starts off with Cedric Alexander in his Dragon Gate USA debut, and then Larry Dallas comes out from behind the from the curtain with a two, with a microphone, and Larry Dallas says, "I know I'm not supposed to be here," and Rob Naylor on commentary replies, "Oh God, no."
2: And for that, we love Rob Naylor. Yeah. And then he promised that if Atu loses, he would leave forever. The first, which, okay. <laughs> what what a
1: lie. What a just not true that did not happen. <laughs> so John
2: Davis won this match. It was Cedric Alexander versus Atu versus Caleb Conley versus John Davis versus Facade versus Flip Kendrick versus Lewis Linden versus Sugar Duncan then versus Tony Nese. I didn't write down all the eliminations, but the deciding elimination was uh, John Davis on Tony Nese for the three seconds around the world. Uh, here's what I'll say about this. This went, incredibly long this went 19 minutes and the time that was john davis wrecking shop ruled i'm now on the john davis train i've reassessed this and decided all right i'm aboard john davis was not a fan of john davis at the time now at least watching this through here he just completely just like steamrolls people and throws them around and then you had like this this weird like shindy section in the middle of it and then you had more john davis just destroying people and it owned Yeah, there
1: is a portion of the match that is dominated by façade Flip, Kendrick, and Lewis Linden, which is dangerous. Do not do that uh, if you are booking an independent professional wrestling promotion. Do not have those three out there dictating how your match is going to be. But you're exactly right. This is the John Davis show. Atu kills Cedric Alexander. Alexander is gone in uh, a minute and 15 seconds. And then out comes John Davis. And this is a 20-minute match, and in the second minute of the match... John Davis hits a pounce oh, on two what a pounce that destroys him and my issue with this match look I think they actually nailed the layout of it where in the end John Davis uh hits the three seconds around the world on Tony Nese, who had been built up this entire weekend as this can't miss guy. John Davis kills him in the end and wins the match but I really think they made a mistake not ending the match with Davis pouncing Atu into oblivion. Because 18 minutes later, that's all I could think about was how great that spot was and how tough John Davis looked. But instead, we had to deal with 17 minutes of Facade and Flip Kendrick and guys I don't necessarily care for. But John Davis is the guy they wanted to get over, and John Davis came out looking really good from this match. Yeah,
2: And then post-match, we went backstage again. Rich Swan's plan worked, and then... We had the formation of Ronin as a year two highlight, which for me this is the first thing. It's like, oh yeah, Ronin originally were like supposed to be mega heels, like yeah, <laughs> like that. That was like my one takeaway from like these year two things. A lot of them, you know, hit the mo- the notes that you think they would hit, and this one was like, oh wait, that happened, and that led us to DUF of Sammy Callahan and Eric Cannon defeating the open the f- when open the Dream Gate champions, uh, Masaki Moshizuki and Sumi Yokosuka. In 16 minutes and 49 seconds when Callahan got Yokosuka to submit to the stretch muffler and a, I, I have to say this, any match that Rob Naylor comes out and immediately says, we have M2K reuniting, I'm already going to be in a good mood <laughs> and this ended up being like, this was like the one match that I like get 16 minutes and 49 seconds, like you know what, that worked for the time they worked this like, as like the, these, uh, the, these old vets basically being the crap out of these rookies and this felt like a bigger win than it came off as and that was like the thing that surprised me is the crowd did not recognize how big of a win this was for duf
1: if you had to rank the three duf versus mochizuki matches throughout the weekend of callahan versus mochizuki cannon versus mochizuki and then this tag match how do you stack those three up against each other all
2: right so i'm pulling i'm i'm paging back my notebook i went three and a half on this one i went three and three quarters for callahan mochizuki and three and a half for cannon so this one would probably be my second favorite. I thought that.
1: Okay, so we are yeah we're exactly on line there because that that was that was my takeaway from it was man it it wasn't quite as good as that Mochizuki versus Callahan match that two weeks later I'm still thinking like man that was a really good match like Callahan does not have matches like that anymore I wish we still had that Sammy Callahan of like Molgoth Jock that just took it to Mochizuki here. I mean, these guys, the DUF team gets obliterated. Uh, specifically, Yokosuka, who you know obviously had to do the J-O-B, was taking his aggression out on Eric Cannon in particular. There's a few clotheslines, yeah. Jumbo Nokachis, that Eric Cannon gets hit with. Cannon is a big dude. He has a built—it doesn't seem like a ton would faze him. And he looks like he is in so much pain when Susumu throws that baseball
2: bat of a bicep across his <laughs> chest— Really,
1: really enjoyed those interactions. Cannon
2: sold his ass off in this match. Like, Cannon, like, is... I I know how you're thinking, oh, Sammy Callahan was like this to date, I'd be okay with him. I'm more thinking about, why didn't Eric Cannon become a bigger star? Because he just, like, sold his ass off and made, like, everything look great in this match and everything really gelled. This was, like... Again, this was a match that really worked and the only, like, disappointing thing was like you had the finish which was like the which was like the that diving forearm going into like the stretch muffler that was so brutal and at that point you're like okay it looks like he has him and it's like oh he actually got him with this like Susumu tapped out and then this should have been like a moment that DUF was made like like they've already focused their attention on Air Fox but now they've they've won their first feud they defeated the former N2K members they pinned a they pinned a former Dreamgate champion who was teaming with the current Drinkate champion. And the crowd was, like, not, like, reacting as highly as you would think for that. But then again, I, that's, like, I feel like one of the weird things about Misaki Mochizuki and DG USA. no one, like, they don't put enough respect on his name. The fans never... You, you know You know what it is? It's the same way...
1: Mo- Mochizuki comes across in Gate USA the same way Tanahashi comes off when he works Ring of Honor New Japan joint shows, where... They know Tanahashi's a star, but he doesn't connect with the American audience the way that the American audience adopted Okada, or in this sense, you know, Shima, or Dragon Kid, or Yoshino, or Doi, or Yamato. Or Tozawa. Or to, Tozawa's the better example. Tozawa, thank you. To, to, Tozawa was the one that I should have mentioned. Yeah, they just never, they never gravitated towards Mochizuki, which look, I obviously don't understand how that's possible but it's that Tanahashi thing where especially those early Ring of Honor New Japan joint shows he was positioned in main events or semi main events and the crown was never totally into his matches the way that they would be for Okada or Nakamura or Naito and Mochizuki has that same symptom
2: yeah I mean we'll get into this on the mini weekend shows about how I was one of only four people who was chanting Mochi like we'll get into that but it definitely is a thing
1: I do think, just from what I like in wrestling and in production, they give up on the idea of embracing Dragon Gate lineage really quick in this promotion. And obviously, there's some issue with gaining the rights to the Japanese footage because they stopped doing the bonus disc. And, you know, they they stopped using any footage they had tied to Japan but it seems like Susumi Okosuka is someone who is positioned as a, as a mid-level Dragon Gate guy in this promotion. And in Japan at the time, he was positioned as a mid-level guy. But as you mentioned, he's a former Open the Dream Gate champion. He's been in the company since day one. He's a guy that is so respected by the fan base and by his peers. And they just never really get that idea over mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I just really wish they were running, you know, these 60-second promo packages of, here's Susumu Yokosuka, former Dreamgate champion, Cyber Adventure Tag League winner, Twin Gate champion, this and that, this and that. But if you're watching this show for the first time, you know, on iPay-Per-View, you don't know who this guy is, and you don't know who Mochizuki is. And, and they fail after, uh, really, the first four or five, maybe six shows, because that takes us to the end of Phoenix. They just never get back on board with explaining and expanding on who the Drangate guys are outside of a Newswire blurb about this guy winning this or this guy winning that. Yeah, that's
2: a fair point. I, it, it's something that I feel like progressively will become more and more of a problem with the promotion. And it's something that like with this match and with like how you said about like the Newswire and things like this throughout the rest of the, the promotion, as I just said, it'll go like this. Like, to the point of when, like when we get like deeper in, and when you don't really have like units being as much of a thing, and especially post Blood Wars and Junction Three, I don't feel like that the, the company made any effort whatsoever to keep people up on stuff. So this is like the start of that, and it's something that it's like so frustrating, especially like now we live in this world where WWE owns all this footage and it's which should
1: terrify people
2: i've said that before yes. i'll say it again wwe owning the at usa library is not good
1: that should scare people
2: yeah uh, and as an archivist i don't think we will be seeing any of this footage like at, in full and i don't think we will be seeing matches like the next match really in full ever and i don't think that a lot of this stuff now is going to be crypted and that sucks
1: no, no, we'll we'll never see these shows in full again. I mean, it's it's the reality of it. They're not going to upload, open the historic gate with BB Hulk versus Yamato no. to the WWE network. They're not doing that. It's not going to happen. And it's you know, it's one thing. I, I it's just it's bad. It's bad. I I don't like that they own as much footage as they do, and I especially don't like that they own this footage in particular because. You're never you're never going to see this stuff in full if you don't already own yeah, it. Yeah,
2: basically. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I feel like that we do this series. And even though we're we're reaching the point of the promotion is not what, what it was and it's going to be frustrating for us for a while. But if we don't talk about it, no one else will. And there won't be some sort of free record of the promotion after this. Like, that's the thing that really frustrates me is that this is a, a five-year promotion. It's a promotion that has approximately about 50 shows. We're about at the halfway point, if not over the halfway point of the promotion. Like, the promotion will be dead by WrestleMania week in 2014. But you're never going to see Mercury Rising 2014 on that on the, the network. And you know what? That one? Fair. Maybe they shouldn't upload that. Fair play, fair play to that. And CZW, DGUSA Heat from Hollywood, Florida, definitely will never be on that network. But, yeah, no. So, like, the fact that they did not, like, prepare people for Masaki Mochizuki and Sumiakosuka – is like indicative of how the promotion feels like it's going to be over the next two and a half years of existence. And that leads us right to a WWN live promo. <laughs> and that goes into another year to your moment. This was during the tag team tournament. This was the die fly team of Naruki Doi and Ricochet versus Yoshino and pack from Philadelphia. Another like gay picked like the right moments for this other the ones you could do. And that leads us to a recap of Austin Aries turn, which yes, that's an important thing to do. But if you're going to have a recap of Austin Aries' turn, why don't you have a th- a 30 second interstitial about uh Susumu Yokosuka? Why didn't you have one for Masaki Mojizuki? And that was like my big takeaway from that from like this little interregnum before we get into the elimination tag.
1: I would argue if you're going to recap the Austin Aries' turn, recap it instead of just replaying the segment because right. I feel like we just got the full turn once again, if we just had to watch that angle that was long at the time, we had to just rewatch all of it in preparation for this match. For this
2: match that is uh Masato Yoshino joining up with Ronin versus Blood Warriors in a six man tag team elimination match. It went thirty five minutes and ten seconds. Going down the eliminations, the first eliminations was Shima. Eliminating Yoshino with the Blood Silk Road clutch. Something that you that I can't remember the last time other than this, that I actually had to go back and like check to make sure this is this is the blood silk road clutch i had to go look for that case so that that, that's that's something also about this match shima was in a mood tonight breaking out that wasn't the the the, uh the jorge clutch or Jorge special it was the or jorge complete it was the blood silk road that he eliminated musaru shino with then swan defeated Brody lee with a roll-up we'll get into what happened to that as we get into the match and then shima defeated swan with meteora and then gargano eliminated both shima and Austin Aries with, with the Gargano escape to be the sole survivor of this match. And this was a lot. This match was a lot. It when, It's currently the longest match I think that DGUSA had in its history up to this point. And you, we kind of need to take this like by chunks by chunks, I feel like. So... What was your thoughts of, like, the first few moments uh, before Masato Yoshino came out? And then we had, like, the full six-man tag, like, leading up until the elimination of Yoshino. Like, what were your thoughts of this match?
1: Well, from—so, Ronan—or, I'm sorry, Blood Warriors enter first, and then Gargano and Swan come out, and Brody Lee and Austin Aries start brawling with them. And the camera is right up on Gargano and Swan. And judging from their reactions of shock and then, like, oh, wait, I have to sell this, I, I don't think the pre match attack was planned for them. I think that is a decision that Ares made. And what struck me here was that they did the Cork and Hall walk and bra style in BB Kings. They just didn't have to go up two flights of stairs right. and threaten to pull someone else, or you know, to throw somebody over the balcony. But they they did the Cork and Hall style of match, and when you're in there with Shima and Brody Lee and Yoshino, look, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. I think something that we've talked about on the weekly update shows that we do is kind of the luxury of not being allowed to do that right now I think is making a lot of matches more digestible than they, they might have been in a, air quotes, normal universe. Here they brawl all around the arena, and... It's just, it's, I, I like it. I, I'm on board with this match at this point because a lot of it is Blood Warriors beating down Rich Swan and Swan sells his ass off. And I've got more to say on Swan as we go along in this match. But I, I like this opening portion.
2: Yeah, like it's an absolute dismantling. There is a kind of ridiculous low sell. Like, so they, it was Shima who had Rich Swan and he uh, wishbone him and started kicking him in the groin while the referee was distracted. And then they had, and then Austin Aries pulled his arms, and then really jumped and did a splash onto like the the knees and the waist of Rich Swan. Then Rich Swan sold it like he was having a seizure, which was like okay, that's one way of taking it this lip. But they haven't been being down Rich Swan for a long time. But yeah, Swan sold his ass off, basically up until he was eliminated.
1: Yeah, Swan. Well, I'll say it now. I mean, by the end of the match, thirty six minutes deep gargano gets his moment he f- comes across at the end of this match and then especially by the end of the show comes across like a star but while Rich Swan is in the match Rich Swann is the one who had my complete undivided attention because I, I once again I thought he was brilliant here and the booking does not reflect the respect of Rich Swan that I have for him especially at this time but this is this is the Swan show I mean he is excellent in this match and he and Shima have such good chemistry with one another and Gargano and Shima work well together too but watching Swan and Shima go at it when Shima dominates him is just really
2: exciting for me I think those two always always had good chemistry with one another and and I think some of it might be rooted that I get the distinct impression that Shima does not have a very high opinion of Rich Wan at this time like this (laughs) that is fair like a lot of it is swan selling kashima is laying him out uh, and then we had this moment where swan was in the turnbuckle what was against the turnbuckle and Brody lee runs and gives him a big boot and his knee gives out it is noted after them after the show that he tears both his acl and mcl so they had to pull an audible and rich swan gets a quick roll up on Brody lee i th- definitely was not playing and this was 20 minutes into the match but Bray Lee's, uh knee goes out. And it's one of those things I knew his knee gave out, but I forgot that grew, it went out on the big boot and it looked gross when it happened.
1: Yeah, I noticed early on in this match that the ring mics were really hot because I was hearing way more right. of a referee yes. than I typically do. I don't know why that was because I didn't notice it for the prior matches, but for this one... I kept on hearing a voice, I was like, who the hell is that? But it was the referee, you know, break it up, break it up, or whatever he was saying, and then Brody hits the big boot and goes down, and you can very clearly hear him saying on the DVD mix... You need to pin me. You need to pin me. Please pin me. Um, and Gargano goes to do it, and then Austin Aries throws Gargano to the outside. Yeah, <laughs> um, which I know wasn't intentional. It was just very bad timing. And then uh, Aries and Gargano are brawling on the floor, and that's where the camera is. And while that is happening, I at least I, maybe I just you know blinked and missed it. But I I don't believe they showed Rich Swan pinning Brody Lee. But I take it he just rolled him up, and then Brody Lee slowly rolled out of the ring and got help to the back yeah
2: i mean you you audibly hear him calling the audible uh austin aries being austin aries and then uh that they had the audible and swan got the pinfall of there and at that point everyone at least the americans all look pretty shook other than like the the road inside looked like oh god like what? like you could see like the well uh moment look across their face and then Shima kind of took it into himself to have like a three minute beat down on Rich Swan before giving one of the more, bu- more brutal, uh, meteors to eliminate him.
1: Yeah. And this is uh, definitely a definitive point of the match because it's Shima and Swan and Swan and Brody for so much of this match. And I just love Those three together in that hodgepodge sense. And then Brody goes out, and then, like you said, uh, Swan gets just destroyed with a Meteora, and you're left with Gargano versus Shima, who he has, you know, positioned as his biggest rivalry to date, and Gargano versus Austin Aries, someone who has plagued him since he came into the company.
2: Uh, At this note, I wrote down that Mike Keener was kind of a shitty ref in this match. Like, the refereeing was bad throughout this. Like, I thought that it was pretty. Obvious there, and then Shima, after Rich Swan was eliminated, started doing like, Oh, Ronan, baby, Ronan, baby, I'm baby, <laughs> and then he mocks Ronan. But then, uh, but then, like, through all this, then, uh, uh, Johnny Gargano locks on the uh, Gargano escape at 28 minutes, so that that leaves just uh, Austin Aries and, and Gargano for the remainder of it. And then there was like this really kind of, uh, like, Gargano has a slingshot spear, and then austin aries does like a lame face buster out of it like did did you catch up yeah. like that was really bad Yeah, I did. it was really bad and then it, it kind of went back together and then it uh, eventually it was like that there was a lot of play about the hurt and then like the brain buster they did have gargano did get a kick out of a 450 so kicked out of the finish and then finally got the gargano escape to win this match and to uh, at least at this point seemed like the, that that ronan won the feud
1: Yeah, so Gargano submits Shima, which is now the second time that has happened in this building. He did it at United NYC in the tag tournament and then does it again here. And then, and look, we have not been kind to Austin Aries. This is his final DGUSA appearance. His DGUSA appearances, for the most part, were really bad. Uh, The the period with Gargano and Aries is the weak point in the match. Now, I don't entirely attribute that to Aries. I just think at that point, the match is going too long. There's a seven-minute gap between Shima being eliminated and the eventual final submission. That could have been cut in half, and I think it would have been just much more effective. But ultimately, Gargano submits Shima and submits Aries, and that feels like a moment. Because going into this match, Gargano submitted Shima in this building in a tag. He lost to Shima in a singles match. He lost to Blood Warriors and the Mercury Rising Six Man. He lost to Ares two nights before. He was just flailing in no man's land. And then the night, you know, the, the show we talked about last week where he almost submits Yamato and then Shima ruins it. And then he cuts that, that backstage promo with Swan where it's like, man, I, I really think I can be Dreamgate gate champion. You know, I think I can beat Yamato and it was a good angle the night before. It's like, wow, I, like, I believe him. But it, it wasn't necessarily warranted. But then he comes in here, and like I said, he submits his two biggest rivals, and it feels like a moment. It feels like Johnny Gargano is becoming someone, and it's great to see. It's a long match. It is not a great match. I think it is very good because ultimately it is an intricate six-man tag, that i am going to give the the 25 year career of this guy i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he always constructs these matches and is involved in matches like this that are great i think shima laid out this match and minus the hiccup of brody lee destroying his knee whenever shima's in the ring this match is on fire and firing on all cylinders it's a 3 and 3 quarter match because i don't love the finish and how long it took to get there but I like the construction of this match overall. I hope that makes sense. No,
2: that's... I'm not going to repeat what you said. But that's Those were exactly my thoughts on three and three quarters as well. It just was something that, like, the climax of this match was seven minutes before. And that makes you have to look at, okay, who are the two people in the ring for that last seven minutes? It was Gargano and Aries. Who is... Who is who is the veteran? Who is the person who's been leading this entire feud? Who's been the person that has been having his matches, regardless if it fits in on the card or not? Austin Aries. So I think that that's an incredibly valid point. And this kind of goes right into the main event and the post-match. This was the time that really it felt like, okay, now we have who's going to be like they that Gargano is here. He is like the homegrown star. You got the feeling of at the end of the show And it's just a shame that you had to go through, like, seven minutes of, like, back and forth for it to happen. And then you have to wait until after the main event. But this is, as much of any night, and we'll go through the shows, this is when uh, Johnny Gargano is now on the Dragon System guys level. It might not necessarily always feel like this, but at least at this moment, everyone can be like, okay, Johnny Gargano is a guy. He submitted Shima now twice in this building. He took out the guy who just completely has embarrassed himself in the ring and has embarrassed the company when he's been around, and that is a solid enough takeaway that I will give that three and three quarters is appropriate there, and it does make you think like, okay, what could have happened if Brody Lee was in there for much longer? Who was going to like end up being here? Like, what was the original Ronin versus uh, Blood Warriors match with a healthy Chuck Taylor and Brody Lee without his knee going out? It's
1: ultimately a definitive victory for Johnny Gargano. We just talked about Ricochet and how he was made in one night because he pinned a rookie door with a double moonsault. This is not quite as effective because, you know, you can play the, well, we're telling a story, that's why Ares beat Gargano. I understand that. I just think Ares was such an overbearing and unpleasant uh, fixture in the company at this time that it was the wrong kind of heat to see Ares beat gargano two nights before but for gargano to have this moment it's like okay he's a guy now i respect him i get what he's done he has that definitive victory that his character desperately needed at this point in his career
2: yeah yeah and it's def, it's a moment that if anything's going to happen on this show that they're going to put on the network for best john gargano it might be like the last 10 minutes of this match to be honest so then we had a dg usa tv Promote. and then we had the last top moment of year two in dragon gate, usa and case it's a moment that i didn't realize that was really such a moment until they presented it as this it was jamato defending the dream the freedom gate championship twice in 16 hours in atlanta did you think of that as like a, as like a tremendous thing that within 16 hours he defended the title twice because i didn't think of that until they presented it to me
1: no, it was not something that I had realized and it was like it was the one moment where I was like,
2: "Oh, yeah, no, I I guess you're right. <laughs> it, maybe not what I would have picked, right. but I you factually that's correct." <laughs> yeah, we 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 can't say you're wrong here, Gabe, but did not think of that beforehand. And that led us into the uh, the title match, the Open the Free Ga- Freedom Gate title match that they've built up all weekend along. Yamato defending against PAC. He defeats PAC in 22 minutes and 27 seconds with the Galleria, and in a match that I really was having a good time with, like this was, like this was the match that afterwards I was like, you know what, this is why I, I think they pulled out of the tailspin. And they've leveled out after this match. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's crazy to think that this is the last singles match Pac and Yamato had with one another. They, they did not wrestle each other in a singles match after this, uh, for the remainder of Pac's first stint in the company. and Then they did not wrestle each other in a singles match when Pac returned. In 2018, so this is the last version of this match we have. And it's just, I, I've said it before, and, and now it happens in a singles match, so it's a little bit more warranted, I feel like. But just the individual performance from Pac, where he's bumping like crazy at times, and then he does that like like a pole vaulter's jump. um, I, I, A Fosbury flop is what I'm thinking of, like over the top rope on a Yamato. And it's just everything he does, he does with intensity and with purpose. And what this match felt like, which is maybe not what you want to have for one of your flagship shows, your anniversary show, maybe you want something a little bit more dramatic, maybe you want something that feels a little bit bigger, but this reminded me of like Roderick Strong competing for the ROH World title, where... You know he's not gonna win because he's probably wrestling in Dayton, and they never changed the title in Dayton, because it's the first show on the double shot. And granted, here it's the finale, so I think Pac has a bigger edge with that idea of like, oh, could he win? Like, is this possible? And I, I was buying into that idea that, like, wow, Pac is really coming across. Like, he could win the Dream Gate or the Freedom Gate belt. Obviously, there would be no logical reason for that to happen. Had Pac won, it would have been a ginormous shock, but during the match, I was believing the story that Pac could have won, which is the best thing I can say about this match, that I went four flat on just for the the, the sheer effort of the two, I think it's a four
2: star match. I went four and a quarter, so this is like the the, the show that like I realized you've norm- normally been a little bit higher about stuff than I am, but this is the show that I think I'm higher than you about at least the matches that I go high on and the thing that got me about this is Pac the, the, this is like kind of a match where it is totally about pack you're absolutely right about this but this is a match that i wish happened in 2015 or 2016 during yamato's dream gate reign because to me the story of this match was yamato finally surviving pack like going through all of this and then being able to like finally like find his spot and go like all right i'm done here locking in the doshime sleeper and then from that point it was him just taking care of business and i thought that was incredible i thought that was an incredibly smart match especially for someone like Pac, who is in japan like he is treated at like his level but he's still i believe at this time he still is the bravegate champion but he was not having like top of the card matches at that point and this was like a big moment i feel like if you look in the overall dragon system canon like this is like the first like thing like singles performance of pack where it's like no i am one of the the top guys you should treat me as a top guy from now on And i feel like that that was this moment here
1: and then after that, I think we have another top guy initiation. Mike, explain this post-match angle.
2: So, uh, so like, I, I do have one question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry sorry, sorry to, to jump ahead. Oh, no, no problem. So we, we came across this with Tozawa and Atlanta. Knowing that PAC is going to be around on DGUSA shows throughout the end of this, could this been a moment where uh, PAC became Freedom Gate champion and have made total sense? Because I... Wonder about this, especially with the Yamato's reign at this time.
1: It does seem like a little bit of a waste to promote this champion's challenge that Gabe had promoted where Yamato would challenge for the United Gate Belt and then Pac would challenge for the Freedom Gate Belt. It does seem like a little bit of a waste for one of the titles to not change hands and... Uh, you know, probably five shows from now. I think it is we'll be talking about Pac versus Brody Lee. And if I was, you know, given the pencil, that would be for the world title of any promotion in the in the world, for that matter. But I think Yamato is the right move here. Now, again, I still think they could have put the belt on Tozawa in Atlanta. And I, I right. I'm not going to say that was the right move to put the belt on Tozawa. But, man, I I really am leaning with revisionist history going, man, I think they should have pulled the trigger there. I think that would have been good for not only Tozawa, obviously, but I think it would have been good for Drangit USA. Yamato surviving that Tozawa match, I think he had to win this, and I'm okay with the result. I, you know, for as much as I love him, for as much as his work has blown me away during this project, I think it is realistic and reasonable to say that 2011 Pac headlining any promotion is maybe not the smartest business move. 2018, 2019, okay. 2020, if he can ever wrestle again, Pac has only wrestled seven matches this calendar year, which sickens me. It's not his fault. It just, God, what a bummer. But assuming Pac can ever come back to AEW again, I would legitimately consider Putting the world title on him. I think he's that good. In 2011 I get why you why you wouldn't really want that as the image of your promotion.
2: That's fair. That's fair. It's just pop in my mind that I wanted to ask you on this. So, this coronation thing. So, uh Yamato and Pak have like a show of respect. Of course, they're they're both members of the Mochizuki army, and we talked a lot about Mochizuki army last week. They would both be members of Junction 3, and they were going to kind of show respect. And Shima came. Shima came out, and he challenges Yamato, and that means that Blood Warriors attack. So they laid out this, and Shima said that he wanted the belt, and that sets up the next the next Dream Gate challenge. And then Gargano and Swan come out for a save. And then Johnny Gargano does the go-home talk for the first time and Gabe in the Gabe verse History, unless he did it on a Evolve show, which I don't think they were doing go-homes <laughs> on the Evolve shows, but he says... He talked about his and the company's ascent. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, Johnny. I mean, it's your ascent, definitely. DG USA's, well, they ran their uh, second anniversary show in front of 500 people versus the 900 they had the year previous. And then he says that Ronin is the best stable as they've won. And they made a reference to the Freedom Gate because he did hold up the Freedom Gate belt and handed it back to Yamato during the beatdown. And definitely, like, he's talked about it, as you mentioned, about, like, the night before, saying, like, I think I could be Freedom Gate champion. And then, thinks everyone goes home. But at this point, we have two ways that Yamato is going in his future. Sh- Shima has already immediately laid out a, cha- a challenge, and then Johnny Gargano has made a claim saying, "I will be a future Freedom Gate champion, and I'm not. I- I'm going to take this title." So I thought that was pretty remarkable as well, and it was a real effective use of the go home promo, which is usually one of like the moments where I look at and see how much is left on the f- on the disc before I decide to eject it.
1: It is an awesome, awesome angle where everyone, Shima, Yamato, and Gargano all come out looking better because of it. Because Yamato shows some charisma as he clutches his Freedom Gate title and pets it uh, when Gargano says he wants the belt. Shima obviously cutting a heel English promo was super entertaining. But the end of it where Gargano, without the Freedom Gate title at this point, but still him closing the show over Pac, it's like, okay... This seems like it's his promotion now, or at least it's becoming his promotion. It's a really big elevation night for Johnny Gargano because he comes into this, like we've said, Ronan is not booked strong. I mean, Ronan is honestly, no. they're booked weak. I mean, they they do not come across well. They do not come across dangerous or destructive or effective they come across like three dorks, quite honestly. And that's not just because of the promos they cut and the way they're presented. It's because of the fact that they don't win matches against, you know, Blood Warriors and and whoever else, whatever other Japanese talent is there. But this night with Gargano submitting Shima, submitting Ares, and then cutting the go-home promo, there is a stark contrast in Gargano's momentum exiting this show compared to when he entered this show. And for that, Dragonet USA needs to be applauded.
2: Yeah, and I remember like how uh, critical I was for a while about how they were treating Ronan to the point where I was like, "Hey, is this a cardinal sin that they weren't treating Ronan to the level that they should have been at that time?" But Gar- Johnny Gargano, through this weekend and, and through this night, that I looked ahead just to make sure I was not speaking out turn her here, there was something very deliberate about how. Gabe Sapolsky treated Johnny Gargano at least at BB Kings. And it's something that, at the end of the day, I feel like it was a success. But during the time, and looking at it like also as like how Rodin has been treated, kind of something that's like, okay, Rich Swann's getting beat up a lot. Chuck Taylor's out this weekend, but he's not really treated as someone at the lowest same time. But Johnny Gargano? Johnny Gargano feels like that he's on the ascent. And I feel like that that was something that was done pretty well. And that is... Uh, the second anniversary show enter the dragon 2011 case okay, so we're, we are now two years through this promotion we're entering year three we think that things aren't that that, that there's not like a rosy ending coming anytime soon but uh, this show made me feel a lot better about this triple shot weekend
1: it's a really fun show it's I mean it's long I think it's the longest show to date it clocks in, in almost three hours which given how few matches yeah. there are on it it's again matches could have been shorter but it's 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 a fun show. It's clearly the highlight of this Triple Shot weekend. And if I do my math correctly, which, granted, there's a good chance I didn't, but I believe next week's episode marks the halfway point of us covering Dragon at USA. Again, could be wrong. We'll need Mike to double-check at some point, but I believe next week is the halfway point of this promotion.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things that at least, like, again, like, there's not a lot of there's not as many like solid records about this both like all the ipay per views and the dvd things i believe we are at that halfway point dragon gate usa will not make it to its uh, fifth birthday so we only have two more birthdays left which is kind of wild to think so. But
1: before before we throw dirt on the promotion, we do have Chasing the Dragon 2011 from my hometown in Indianapolis, Illinois. This will be covered next week. Uh, a show that features the debut of The Scene, Caleb Conley and Scott Reed, as well as the debut of UHA Nation. Also on the card, Eric Cannon versus John Davis, an open invitational elimination match featuring BJ Whitmer, Billy Rock, Sugar Dunkerton, Flip Kendrick, Matt, Mike Seidel, not Matt Seidel, but Mike Seidel, and Brody Lee, Naruki Doi versus Sammy Callahan, Lewis Linden versus Pinky Sanchez, Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano against the officially formed unit of Junction 3 and Masato Yoshino and Yamato. And a six-man tag Captain's Fall match with Pac and Rich Swan representing Junction 3 as well as A.R. Fox against the Blood Warriors trio of Shima Ricochet and Akira Tozawa.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite moments in DG USA history happens before or DG history happens before this next show, so case. I think we've pretty much covered this all we have to. Is there anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here?
1: Mike, I think we've covered of the Dragon 2011 better than anybody else ever will.
2: Yeah, I did not realize our runtime was going to go this late tonight, <laughs> but oh well, that <laughs> happens. Uh, so you could follow us on Twitter. The podcast account is at Open Voicegate. I am at Fujiheya that's with two eyes like Don Fuji. cases at underscore in your case. If you're on the Apple Podcast app, feel free to rate and review. Please, five stars. And that's going to do it for Case. i Mike, and we'll be back with you next week as we're going into Low Country <laughs> for Chasing the Dragon 2011. Take care, everyone.